Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humor. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modeling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't know because everything is just fine. Transparency and supply chains are key to today's episode, which is a little bit different from usual. It's a special report on Oxfam Australia's What She Makes campaign. As of January 2017, so much wealth was in the hands of so few people around the globe that just eight men held the same amount of riches as half of all humanity. I mean, <laughs> I can hardly read that without being mad. Armancio Ortega is on that list. He is the founder of Inditex, which owns Zara. And of course, Zara has been in the news again recently for worker issues. I actually wrote my sustainable style column last week about this, and I will share a link in the show notes. Based on CEO pay levels of some of the big brands in Australia, it would take a Bangladeshi garment worker earning the minimum wage more than, wait for it, 4,000 years to earn what CEOs get paid in just one year. Meanwhile, some of the biggest brands in Australia are enjoying enormous increases in revenue. Cotton On, for example, more than doubled its revenue between 2014 and 2016. Kmart's revenue is also ballooning. It jumped from 4.21 billion to 5.19 billion in the same period. And yet, surprise, surprise, these profits are not trickling down to garment workers. On average, offshore workers receive about 4% of the retail price of a t shirt sold in Australia. What does that look like in terms of wages? We're talking about a handful of coins, just 39 cents an hour. That is from Oxfam Australia's report, which has just come out, and it's called What She Makes, Power and Poverty in the Fashion Industry. This campaign is about putting pressure on brands who manufacture clothing and accessories offshore in countries like Bangladesh, Vietnam and Indonesia to commit to paying garment workers in their supply chains, not just a minimum wage, but a living one. According to Oxfam, a living wage should be earned in a standard working week of no more than 48 hours, and it should provide for a worker and their family a decent standard of living. So that means food, housing, healthcare, clothing, transport, and utilities like energy and water, as well as childcare, education, and a bit of money left over for emergencies. To put together this report, they worked with Deloitte Access Economics to figure out how much garment workers are getting paid in Asia, which is home to most of the world's garment production, and also how much brands would have to fork out to improve things. The answers are confronting. Although the region has experienced strong economic growth in recent decades, the poorest 70% of people in Asia have seen their income share fall. 
Remember that 4% from the price of a t-shirt. A rise of just 1% could mean paying a living wage. So why aren't brands stepping up to do this? For this episode, I chatted to some shoppers to see how much they knew about all this. I also visited Oxfam Australia's head office to talk with senior campaigner James Dunlop and one of the advocates who worked on the report, Joy Kiriasu. The additional sound grabs you will hear are from Emma Daly, comms director of Human Rights Watch, from Clara Vulicic's TED Talk, which is titled How to Engage with Ethical Fashion, and from episode five of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast with Kalpona Akhtar, the Bangladeshi garment worker union leader. Again, check the show notes for links. And as always, I would love to hear your feedback. I see you've got a shopping bag in your hand there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, did you buy a shirt, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had to get a couple of new shirts for work. So. Have you ever thought about who makes them? No, not really. <laughs> I want to ask you something. How much of the percentage of what you paid for those shirts do you think went to the person who sewed it? Who sewed it? Um, 10%. Oh, hi. Do you mind if I ask you a quick question about how you're shopping? Sure. Have you ever thought very much about who makes your clothes? Uh, not really, no. If you were buying a new T-shirt and it cost 20 bucks, can you just guess how much of that 20 bucks might go to the person who sewed it? Maybe $5 or so. Fast fashion has turned us into these passive consumers who are constantly chasing the fantasy that buying more clothes will make us happy. And as we know, the people who make our clothes, they're often working in quite faraway countries from us here in Australia, in quite poor working conditions and paid quite poorly. We're here at Rana Plaza in April 2013. A building housing several garment factories here collapsed, killing more than a thousand people. We've seen significant improvements to health and safety conditions in Bangladesh's factories. But we've also documented continuing and serious violations of labor rights, including workers who are forced to work overtime, sometimes without being paid for it, workers who are subject to verbal and even physical harassment, often because they can't meet production quotas, and factories that deny workers sick leave or maternity leave, even holidays. We lived in minimum wage for three decades, and it's enough. My fight will not end until we can ensure a jobs with dignity. And a dignity can be earned with a living wage, a safe workplace, and a union voice at the workplace. So workers have right to organize and right to bargain. And I will not stop coming back to you all until you act to ensure that jobs with dignity. And trust me, together we can ensure that. Because you consumers, your voice is crucial. It is really matters. So act, it's not an easy fight. We'll be in a living wage campaign pretty soon. We're going to ask the brands to pay a few cents more. So the brand that you are buying clothes of, go to them and ask them. I'm here in Oxfam, Australia's head office in Sydney with James Dunlop. I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about your role at Oxfam, James. I sure can. I am one of the senior campaigners at Oxfam Australia. So I work on Oxfam's campaigns on climate change, on labour rights and on Indigenous issues. We're here to talk about this new campaign, which is What She Makes. It's very exciting. Before we do that, I wonder if you might like to just tell us, why does Oxfam get involved in these issues around labour rights? Because I think some people might be listening and thinking, well, I know Oxfam as a charity that helps out with famine relief or disaster relief. 
Why does Oxfam get involved in this supply chain stuff? Yeah, sure. People often know Oxfam for, you know, after a tsunami or an earthquake or right now in Bangladesh with the Rohingya crisis, like Oxfam will be there. But at the same time... Or getting a goat, because I got one for Christmas. Yeah, or getting a goat. We do a lot of fundraising and, you know, the money that money will go to our disaster relief or our long-term development work. At the same time, Oxfam's about supporting the poorest and most vulnerable communities in the world. And we do that obviously through humanitarian relief. But at the same time, we work to change the system that produces poverty. And so we can, we, Oxfam aims to do both. And our work on garment workers' rights um, falls into that category. And actually, I will just take a moment to say, if listeners haven't had a chance to hear the episode of this podcast with Kalpona Akhtar, the Bangladeshi garment worker union leader, and it's episode five, and we will share a link, then please do, because she speaks really powerfully about what it's like to be one of Bangladesh's millions of low-paid female garment workers. But James, let's talk about Bangladesh. Is... Bangladesh dealing with the lowest wages and and what about China because I feel like when you think about made offshore you think about made in China Mm. yeah you do so the second biggest garment producing nation in the world is Bangladesh the first is China but we're also increasingly making garments in places like Cambodia in India in Sri Lanka in Indonesia where are low wages concentrated? The level of production in Bangladesh is increasing, and Bangladesh is among the lowest paying clothing producing countries. The minimum wage in Bangladesh is one of the lowest across any of the countries that we're focusing on. We're also looking at Cambodia, Vietnam, and Indonesia. And of course, what happens here is big brands chase the cheapest needle. So even though China is still the biggest garment producing nation in the world, costs are going up there, wages are rising, conditions are improving, and then brands are finding that that's too expensive and so they're running away trying to find the cheapest alternative. Bangladesh has four million garment workers and as you said, the majority of them are women and we're paying them peanuts. Do you know, James, how much of the apparel sold in Australia, roughly, is made in Bangladesh? I think it's probably about 9%. You know, but what she makes is specifically about paying garment workers a living wage. The reason why Oxfam's launched What She Makes is that the women that make our clothing, predominantly around the world, aren't being paid enough to live on. They're not being paid enough for adequate housing or health or food or enough for meagre savings to put aside for unexpected things to happen. We focused on Bangladesh for the launch of this campaign because the minimum wage in Australian dollars in Bangladesh is 39 cents an hour, which is the lowest out of any of the countries that we're focusing on. But in China, the minimum wage is on average about 93 cents. Okay, let me stop you there, James. Yeah. Can you explain the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage? Sure. A living wage is the amount of money that a worker needs to earn for the basics in life. And the basics are? Enough food, access to health, adequate accommodation, access to transport and energy, and enough money left over at the end of the month to put aside in in case something... A safety net. Yeah, a safety net. So it's not catastrophic if circumstances arise that impact on their ability to earn, so if they get sick or if they have to care for a parent or... Or if they get fired. So what is a minimum wage? So a minimum wage is the legal benchmark. Each country will set their minimum wage you know, according to a whole bunch of different reasons. 
Who decides then? Governments? Governments decide what the minimum wage is. But it's over the last, you know, 20 years, it's been in a government's interest to attract foreign investment and to convince companies that, you know, you want to come and produce clothing in my country, therefore we'll set a minimum wage fairly low. And the problem is that they've set it so low, which is it might be attractive for H&M to set up a factory, but they're not paying workers enough you know, to afford the basics. Okay, so James, who decides what a living wage is? So if governments benchmark the minimum wage and then enact that into law, who comes along and says, actually, there's a disparity, a living wage is X? Yeah. So there's a couple of different benchmarks around how to work out what a living wage is. One is the Asian floor wage and one is the anchor methodology. The Asian Floor Wage Alliance, AFWA, is an international alliance of trade unions and labour rights activists. And the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, AFWA, is an international alliance of trade unions and labour rights activists. And the Asia Floor Wage is all about proposing a living wage that holds across Asia. It's calculated in PPP dollars, and that stands for Purchasing Power Parity. And it's an imaginary currency built on the consumption of goods and services by people that basically allows them to compare the living standards between countries, regardless of the national currency. So what they're trying to do with this is remove the temptation for companies to look for wage differences in different countries and use them to race to the bottom. So, you know, pull out of one country to manufacture in another with lower costs. And the anchor methodology, that's A-N-K-E-R, is named after its authors, and they are Richard and Martha Anker, who basically spent their careers working for the ILO and the World Health Organization. And they wrote this thing called Living Wages Around the World, Manual for Measurement. And they've worked with companies like Eileen Fisher and Tiffany & Co. on supply chains and calculating living wages in different countries. The minimum wage in Bangladesh is $87 a month, which is not a living wage. It's not enough to cover basic needs. And the living wage in Bangladesh is $248 a month. It's actually quite a big gap. It's a huge gap. But if you jump from that to even China, where the minimum wage is $194 Australian dollars a month, a live, an estimated living wage is 463 so actually we're seeing big gaps across the board. We're seeing big gaps across the board. Let's talk about what she makes. Why is it what she makes? Why not what he makes? When we launched this campaign, we knew we wanted to create a campaign about living wages. This is the critical next step in the ethical fashion conversation. Oxfam Australia has been campaigning on ethical fashion for the last 20 years and we've looked at lots of different issues. we looked at sweatshops, um, sandblasting, and then since Rana Plaza, we've been looking at issues like transparency, signing the Bangladesh Fire and Safety Accord. Living wage fits as this critical next step in this journey towards a fair fashion industry. And what we've found is that 80% of the workforce in the garment industry are women. But often the gender question is left as like a bullet point within a campaign or a bullet point within the broader conversation. But by calling it what she makes it, there's no hiding. You know, this is, it's a workers' rights issue, but it's also a women's rights issue. And I think what's exciting about what she makes is that this is an overtly feminist campaign. It's about, it's about the women that, that make our clothing. And I think that there's this really interesting and uncomfortable contrast between the fashion industry in general as ambassadors and as champions of women's rights and then the flip side, which is that the majority of the workforce at the fast fashion industry employs are women and they're not being paid enough to cover the basics. 
Can you describe to us a little bit about one of these women's lives, one of these garment workers who was interviewed by your researchers? Yeah. So preparing for what she makes, our researchers did a trip to kind of, ma- I guess, make sense of the data. Like living wages, this is not a new question. All the companies that we're targeting, a lot of them have something about living wage on their websites. We've been talking about living wages for a long time. And we knew that there was this stark disparity between the minimum wage in the country and what a living wage needs to be. One of the women, Fatima, who's featured in this campaign, um, she has a face covered in the video and in the images that are on the website, specifically because of fear of retribution from her employers. And so, you know, we interviewed six women. It was hard to find women because of a security issue that were happy and were felt safe and comfortable to talk about, you know, their situation. And even some of the women that we interviewed you know, told us stories about there being retribution at work when they brought up issues of health and safety or pay. You know, they were fired or they were suspended from work. So it's a, it's a, real, it's a real issue. And so their faces are covered, you know, for that reason. But Fatima is a 20-year-old woman working in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And some of the clothing that she makes goes to companies like Big W and H&M. And she's earning 43 cents an hour in her factory, which is well below, you know, the living wage. Her living conditions that she lives in a small room that she rents with two other women who are garment workers, and there's no furniture in this room. It's a small concrete room with no beds. It, no it, beds? No beds, and it's running water is only available for one hour, three times a day. Oh, my God. She collects water in the morning before work and stores it in a plastic drum in her room. Fatima's story kind of it makes sense of what it means not to be paid enough to live when you start to think about who you're responsible for. There's this incredible quote, um, if I was paid a better wage, I would move into a flat and bring my mother with me because now, whenever I am able to eat, I'm always thinking, I'm eating, but how is my mother right now? I can't see her. Is she eating as well? Is she getting food? When we hear these stories as consumers of clothing, I'm sure it makes everyone feel upset. I mean... None of us want to be responsible or in any way related to stories like this, especially not in order to make us feel more glamorous or more fashionable or, you know, these aren't basic needs. These are privileges and joys to have some lovely new clothes. What can we do about this? I want to talk to you about how we can tackle the living wage problem. So government set minimum wages, NGOs in collaboration with other organisations work out what living wages are. There's this huge disparity. What can we do? Because at the moment we're leaving it to brands to do the right thing and clearly they're not always doing the right thing. No, they're not always doing the right thing. But I think what's exciting about what she makes and really the much broader conversation or campaign for ethical fashion is that consumers have agency, we have power. And even though you know this conversation around living wages is just starting... This is not a a quick fix, but we have watched the fashion industry change over the last two decades, and a a large part of that can be attributed to popular support, popular mobilisation. Pressure on brands saying, actually, we're not into this. We want you to do better. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to support you. Yeah, and, and brands listen. It's not like they can't afford to pay workers properly, is it? I mean, here's a quote from Oxfam Australia's CEO, Helen Sokey. 
In 2016, the turnover for the Australian fashion industry was about $27 billion. Yet garment workers often earn too little to live in a space with their own bedroom, to have enough to sustainably feed themselves and to look after their needs. It's not a problem of there being not enough money in this industry. The place is awash with cash. Yeah, totally. And the research that we released with What She Makes, that was done in partnership with Deloitte Access Economics, they crunched the numbers on a basic white T-shirt, $20 white t-shirt you can buy from any major department store. And they found that, on average, only 4% of a t-shirt was going back to the worker. But the good news is that they found that it would only take 1% extra to radically change this equation. It would take 1% extra for a worker to be paid a living wage. When you first hear these numbers, the woeful wages that are being paid to workers and also just the lack of responsibility that's being taken by brands, what you think is the reason they won't do it is because it would hugely dent their profit margins or because they'd have to pass on huge rises in costs to the consumer and we won't wear it. But 1%, not much. No, it doesn't seem much. Why don't they do it then? (laughs) We don't want to underplay how complicated the supply chain is and what she makes is asking companies to take steps towards a living wage. We're not asking for a living wage by the end of 2018. Actually, if you go to What She Makes website, you'll see a company tracker that has the companies that we're targeting and then five steps towards a living wage. And companies are already acting. It's not like no one has started. And, you know, it's encouraging to see companies like Target and Big W signing onto agreements saying, that oh, we're interested in living wage, we're committed to a living wage, but... We need timelines. We need you know, a commitment saying we'll produce a roadmap in 12 months and then within three to six years we'll actually implement living wages. We launched the pledge which you can sign and it will help us as we continue working and pushing companies to be better on living wage. And at the same time, Oxfam will launch a whole bunch of other different actions, whether they're social media actions. Right now there's an action, a Christmas action targeting Kmart and Big W, So who's doing the wrong thing? Who's making good progress here, James? And how do brands stack up? Right now, no one's paying a living wage, which is why this is the start of a a journey. No one in terms of these big brands that you're talking about. So can you just put a bit of context around that? Because obviously there are lots of smaller, ethically produced um, fair trade brands, for instance, who pay above a living wage. I can share some in the show notes for those of you who want to support those guys. There are wonderful, wonderful brands that are paying a living wage. None of the companies that we're tracking, none of the biggest, you know, the 16 of the country's biggest. Can you rattle some off? We're talking brands like Kmart, Target, Big W, Bonds, Codenon, Millers, Rivers, Katie's, JJ's. You know, that's just a feel of these kinds of brands. As of now, no one's paying a living wage, but some of them are on the way. So what we're asking brands to do is the first step, we're asking them to get the basics right. So stuff like, have they published the locations of their factories? Are there effective grievance mechanisms? Can workers raise problems that they have at the factory floor straight to a company? The second thing we're asking brands to do is to make a commitment, a public commitment to saying, you know, living wage is an important thing and we're, as a company, we're committed to paying our workers a living wage. You know, this commitment needs to have teeth, like I was saying before. It needs to have... So a timeline. Within three to six years, the women like Fatima in our supply chain will be earning a living wage. We are now joined by Joy Kiriasu, Oxfam Australia's Fair Economies Advocacy Manager. And I begin by asking Joy, how many researchers worked on the report? 
Myself and our labour rights advocacy lead at Oxfam Australia in my team worked on it. And we also worked from a technical report that was um, created for us by Deloitte Access Economics. So at Deloitte, they also had a whole team of people work on crunching the data for us that really gave us that figure of just 4% of the price of a piece of clothing on average sold in Australia, getting back to the workers in developing countries. So, you know, that was also a fantastic collaboration and a great piece of technical economic analysis by them. When it comes to crunching data and when you're looking at graphs and just loads of figures on a page, it can be quite hard to get into that human aspect of it. But what this report does so amazingly, and especially through the video content, which we're going to be sharing in the show notes, is humanise those figures. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? We work with some really incredible partners in Bangladesh and in a lot of developing countries on the ground who really uh, focus on women's rights and work across women's rights in a number of areas. So we worked with an organisation called Karma Jibinari, which means working women is the literal translation in Bangladesh, to come and meet some of the women that they work with. They're an Oxfam partner in Bangladesh and talk to them about their lives. So the, the women in the report are very brave for coming forward and telling their story. And obviously we had to explain to them this is about a big campaign where we're trying to work on, not just in Bangladesh, but in many garment-producing countries, really raising women's wages. So those three women are very brave and they told us their stories, took us into their homes. One of the women you would have seen in the report um, showed us, for example, where she sleeps, which is on a concrete floor um, because she can't even afford a mattress. Um, And that's with a number of other women also sharing the room with her. James shared the story mm. of Fatima yeah. a little bit and we will share more of it online. But can you tell us another woman's story? Yeah, absolutely. So Anju, which is the woman who's on the cover, also she lives in a, in a slum and she lives with her husband. And one of the things that was quite tough to hear, I guess, about Anju's story, but also very brave of her to share, is that uh, she has a couple of children who she had when she was quite young. And because her and her husband are so poor, they have to work all day. She often works 12 hours a day and she earns 37 cents an hour. What has happened is that there was no one at home really to look after her kids. And in the slum where they live, um, one of her children got bitten by a dog at one point and that was very upsetting for her. So what her no and her husband... To ha- no one no, looking after them. No one to no look child after care. them. I mean, when we think no, about the childcare debate in Australia, we mm. haven't gotten any clear what it's like No childcare and also a big threat in many garment-producing companies. If you are a young woman, and most women who work in garment factories are, that you will lose your job if you get pregnant as well. Um, so no kind of provisions there either often or, you know, there might be law, but then that law isn't necessarily enforced. Anyway, so for Anju um, and her husband, what they did was make quite a heartbreaking decision, which was to send their two daughters to go and live quite far away, hours out of the capital, Dakar, um, so that they could live with um, in-laws and be safe, basically. Um, But what that means for Anju and her husband, because they are so poor, they're months behind in rent, is that they only get to see their daughters about twice a year, which is horrifying and something that was very upsetting for her. And probably for you as a woman and as presumably a feminist, how does it make you feel to work on a report like this? Look, it makes me proud, but also it's been hard. 
certainly going to Bangladesh and meeting our partners and the women, uh, particularly from Kaaba Jiminari, who who work on this every day, really can leave you feeling energised because they are such powerful, articulate, incredible feminists that are working on women's rights day in, day out across a range of different sectors. So that is very energising. And also you're um, but doing it's also something hard. powerful too because yeah. here's, here's this report on the desk in front of us and it's been received very enthusiastically by the media. There's loads of stories out there. People are talking about it. That's making a difference. Yeah, we certainly hope it's making a difference. And obviously, as Oxfam, we do a lot of outreach to companies as well before we release a report like this and during. And certainly a lot of companies have come back to us. So that is something that's very positive. And I'm looking forward and very much hoping to see some concrete movement from those companies. Okay, cool. I want to finish up with that because I'm very interested in knowing how brands are reacting. So Mm. you do reach out to brands before you put out a report like this to say, this is what we're doing. Yep. What were some of the reactions that you got? On the most part, we had quite a positive reaction. I mean, we've been talking about living wages for quite some time. We also produced earlier in the year a more technical report that just outlined to companies, these are the steps you can do. Here's all the different pathways because it's a complicated thing. We can work together to try to do something about it. That's right. That's right. But at that time also said to them, you know, and we're going to start talking publicly about this issue, just so you know. So for the most part, we've had a response from companies that has been, you know, obviously companies aren't happy when you put something out that says that you're not doing good enough, which frankly they aren't. But we've had some good conversations with companies about how they can do better, what things they are doing, and really looking at some of the intricacies of, you know, what do I need to do to get the basics right on human rights in my supply chain? And then what are the components of making a real and credible commitment to living wages? You find often a lot of companies have the word living wages in their code of conduct. And then underneath that heading, they'll have a definition that doesn't mean living wages or at all. Or a little asterisk saying didn't really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, but almost, yeah. So so we've had a lot of um, discussions with companies about... How you define it. How you define it and what you really need to commit to. And actually, to. this is a thing. It's not just mm. something you get to define yourself. I mean, it's we've not, talked about that. It's not, and it's not just something you put on your website. You mean you've got to commit to actual action and a time frame. Yeah. Can I just ask you briefly, Joy, about brands? So, Of course, yeah. How many brands are we talking about when we're looking at the brand tracker online, for mm. instance? So we have 17 companies on there. That covers a whole range of brands because a lot of companies, say Factory X, for example, that includes Gorman and it includes Dangerfield, Princess Highway and a range of others. So there's a huge range on there. What we've gone for is some of the biggest in Australia. And that's why you've got, you know, your Kmart, Target, Big W, say are the biggest. We've also tried to get a good cross-section of department stores and your smaller kind of niche brands that are very popular and gaining a lot of traction Can in the market. Can you name some? So is David Jones on there? Yep, David Jones and Maya are both on there. Yeah. And um, how does this fit just internationally? So obviously this is a report that's been produced by Oxfam Australia. If listeners are listening and they want to understand how, for instance, H&M stacks up or Zara stacks Mm, up. They're both on there as well. So H&M and Zara, we've included them because they're gaining huge amounts of traction in the Australian market. So fast fashion in Australia has grown over the past couple of years at something like 24% 
growth rate. Um, so we felt like we had to include some of those because, you know, it's not like the past where, you know, it's kind of parochial and all of the brands are owned in Australia. So how do other Oxfams tap into this research and will they be producing reports in the UK, for example? As Oxfam globally, we have a big piece of work on inequality and what are some of the drivers of inequality around the world. Oxfam Australia, working with a couple of the country teams in Asia, um, Bangladesh, Vietnam and so on, uh, Indonesia, has chosen to focus on garments. Oxfam globally is going to be looking at other kinds of supply chains, such as agricultural supply chains, but also we're looking at coming together as one big Oxfam in January to release a big report on wages around the world. So that should be interesting. Again, it won't just look at garments, but it will look at a range of different supply chains and how big companies sort of work in terms of having some very, very, very high wages at the top and profit um, and money going to stakeholders and then really depending on poverty wages to make all that happen. If people are listening thinking, I want to make a difference here, what's your top line advice? Oh, well, look, I'd have to agree with James and say take the pledge because this is going to be a long campaign. You know, you can't just have one report and one push and expect change to happen overnight. We're going to be working on this for a couple of years. Pressure on brands. Yeah, so taking, taking that pledge means that we'll be able to get in contact with you every time that we're taking a new action and we're asking for pressure on brands. And I guess the only other thing I would say is pressure on brands works. It really works. We've seen that after Rana Plaza. We've seen that also on transparency. Australia is quite unique in that... Almost all of the major brands here have really transparent supply chains. Not many other countries have that. And that's because Australians have taken action. So jump online and take action. We've seen that it worked with Naughty and Nice, for instance. That's right. That's right. And that's been focusing on that transparency issue for a couple of years. And, and for people who aren't aware of Naughty and Nice, could you just summarise that? Yeah. Naughty and Nice is a kind of fun, tongue-in-cheek way. Um, not in fun which... if you're the naughty list. <laughs> no, not fun if you're the naughty list, but a tongue-in-cheek way that Oxfam has made a list, like a Santa Claus list each year, of what brands are doing well on labour rights in their supply chains uh, in terms of fashion brands and what brands aren't. And the past couple of years, we've done that focusing on transparency. So who's hiding their supply chain and who's actually brought it out into the light and taking that accountability of saying, yep, these are where all of my factories are and the exact names and addresses. Yeah, and in just the past 18 months, we've had over 10 brands become almost fully transparent. So it's a huge outcome and it's really in great part to do with the number of people who've taken action and shared that list. I love it. This mm. is a good story. This is yeah. actually a good news story that seems like a bad news story because this is giving us listeners, shoppers, people who want to make change the power to go, actually, here's something you can literally do. Mm. As soon as you've stopped listening to this, hop on the website, take the pledge, yep. share it on social media, tell your friends, put that pressure on brands and let's see who cleans up and like hops onto the nice list. That's right. That's right. And we've got a whole lot of things planned into the future. So keep listening out for it's what's coming us. Thank you, Joy. No That's worries. Joy. Nice to meet you. The end. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. 
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I